Hello and welcome to the third episode of Voices and Queries, the V&Q Books podcast. I'm Katie Derbyshire, publisher at V&Q Books. I'm talking today to Annie Rutherford, the translator of our book The Peacock, written by Isabel Bogdan, who starred in our last episode. And by the familiar miracle of 21st century technology, I can now say hello to Edinburgh, Annie, or indeed, hello to Edinburgh, Annie. (laughs) Uh, Hello to Berlin, Katie. (laughs) Annie's just finished coordinating the Stanza Poetry Festival, which is usually held in St. Andrews, but this year in many, many different living rooms, studies, bedrooms, kitchens. How did it go, Annie? Well, really well. Um, I mean, it was it was a learning experience until the last day of the festival, I would say. My boss compared it to um, learning to write with your other hand. It's like you know what the outcome should look like and you kind of know what you're doing, but it feels very famil- unfamiliar. But yeah, it was lovely. And we had people from Australia and Ghana and the US tuning in, which was amazing, and from Germany. I was surprised how like a festival it felt and and the number of people who said that, that it it felt like being part of a community because a festival should always be more than the sum of its events and that's what what we really pride ourselves on. So that was really exciting. Oh, I'm pleased. The part I saw was (laughs) great and did feel very global, yeah. Mm. Annie's also a writer and translator, obviously, including of the Swiss slash German poet Nora Gomringer and the Belarusian poet Volha Hapeyeva. Have I pronounced that right? Uh, Volha Hapeyeva. Thank you. But you were close. You were very close. Thank you. (laughs) So Annie obviously brought a lot of great things to the table. But one aspect, which is unusual, is that we were expressly looking for a Scottish translator for the Peacock. Annie, what on earth did you think when I came to you with a German book set in Scotland? Do you know, I think I was a lot less surprised than anyone I told about the book. Like, so many people were kind of like, so you're translating it into which language? Mm. Because they couldn't fathom that a German book could be set in Scotland. Whereas, yeah, I, I mean, I think I was a little bit nervous because there are a lot of sort of shortbread tin stereotypes about Scotland and particularly because the Scottish literary community can be quite scathing of those. If that had been the case with the book, I would have been a bit nervous. But I also completely trusted your judgment when you said, uh-huh. when you recommended the book. Um, it's funny that as soon as it comes to translation, we're suddenly surprised that something isn't set in the country that it was written in, you know? Yeah, we're trying to work on that one, chip away at that one. <laughs> um, can you give us a quick summary, a quick plot summary, so everyone knows what we're actually talking about? Oh, this is the bit I should have prepared earlier, isn't it? (laughs) Okay, so the Laird and Lady, Fiona and Hamish, live in a dilapidated castle in the Highlands of Scotland. Or, I mean, that was one of the big conversations we had was whether we could call it a castle. But I'm calling it a castle. It's a castle Um, now. And they rent out um, lots of holiday houses and apartments on the estate, as a lot of places in Scotland do. And over one weekend, a group of bankers from London come for a team building weekend. And the bankers all have interesting dynamics going on amongst the group. It's maybe not the team building weekend that you'd want to go on. If you wanted to go on a team um, building weekend. <laughs> you know, right? It, it takes that to extremes, I guess. And all of that is made more complicated by the fact that Lord and Lady um, Macintosh have some peacocks and one of the peacocks 
has either gone crazy or is visually impaired, we, we don't quite know, but has started attacking anything which is blue and shiny. And the um, banking manager's car is blue and shiny, and this is where the trouble begins. Um, I've kind of described it to people as a comedy of errors, and I don't quite want to say what happens after that, no. because I think the fun of it is the farce. Exactly, and I think that's the best description. I wish I'd heard you say that before we wrote the back cover copy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, you know, for the second edition. Right. (laughs) So anyone who listened to our previous episode will know that Isabel Bogdan is a translator herself. Did that have any bearing on how you approached the translation? It made me more nervous because I figured that she would you know, have her own opinions, and particularly given that she's a translator from English, she's like, oh, she's going to know. But I don't think it affected how I worked or how I approached the text at all. It did mean that when we then came to have discussions, it was really good because she understood the thought processes I'd gone through and she was able to see it both as the author of the text and as a fellow translator, which was really nice. Yeah, I can imagine that would be helpful that you don't have to apologise for asking really stupid questions because she's used to that. Exactly. And I mean, I still did, but she was like, no, but this is what I ask too. She effectively sent me a floor plan of the house at one point because I was like, I need to know whether these rooms are on one level because that's what it sounds like and that doesn't make sense in my head. And they were. So yeah, I have a floor plan of the house, which was great. Oh, brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So one of the things we've heard from booksellers is how delighted they are to be able to offer their customers a really cheerful, uplifting book, um, especially right now. Mm. And you were translating it during the first lockdown. What what was that whole experience like? Oh, I'm so grateful that I had it. Um, So that was lockdown in Scotland. Uh, We had three months of strict lockdown. You were not allowed to meet up with anyone. Um, This was before we had extended households and I live alone. So it was a very isolated time. But I think having a genuinely joyful project to work on and also something with quite a big arc, because as you mentioned, I've mainly worked on poetry and actually having a project that I was sort of chipping away at and knew I had an end goal was really nice. But yeah, it was just really fun and it made me laugh a lot. I think I probably got a bit more obsessive than I would have done otherwise because all of these characters were very, very real to me because, I mean, I was having more conversations with them than I was with anybody, well, anyone other than my mum. My mum and I had many hour-long phone conversations at that time. Uh, I do remember that there's a scene where a few of the characters are in the hot tub and it's this really beautiful scene where these three characters who don't necessarily know each other very well really kind of... yeah relax with each other and it's quite intimate and that was really like it just made me so uh, not nostalgic but kind of I really yearned for that of um, being able to go up to the highlands and look at the stars and um, be in a hot tub I mean right doesn't want to be in a hot tub who doesn't want to be in a Um, hot tub (laughs) and you did such a good job why thank you so I think that obsession paid off if you like um Let's hear a little bit of a taster. Can you just bring us up to speed on what's happening in the passage you're going to read? Yes, so this is actually a parallel to the hot tub scene. Um, a couple of the older characters, um, Jim and Helen, who are my two favourite characters, I oh. think, um, have decided to not go to the hot tub. They stay behind in the kitchen. So Jim is the oldest of the bankers and easily the most pleasant of 
well, one of the most pleasant of the bankers, um, and Helen is the cook. Yeah, they just get chatting in the kitchen, effectively, um, and everyone else is doing their own thing or off away, and it's just this really lovely moment, I think. It's very sweet. Back in the West Wing, Jim took a fresh ice pack and a cup of tea into the sitting room for Bernard, and asked whether he'd like some company. Bernard thanked him, but said that wasn't necessary. He was quite content, alone on the sofa with a few newspapers. So Jim was welcome to join the others going to the hot tub, which Jim had absolutely no desire to do. Somewhat relieved, Jim went back into the kitchen and helped Helen finish clearing the table and drying the dishes. Helen half-heartedly tried to tell him that this wasn't necessary, but she was glad to have such good company. They were soon deep in an animated conversation, which took them from dry stone walls via creatures in the wood, to cooking and food, and then on to the house's two invalids. When they were finished with the dishes, Helen asked if they should go into the sitting room and keep Bernard company, but Jim told her Bernard had said thanks, but no thanks, and instead he fetched his guitar. Helen checked on the boss, who was half awake, and while she was there she asked whether it would bother Liz if Jim were to play guitar for a bit. Oh no, said the boss, quite the contrary. Jim sang so nicely. She liked hearing him sing, and she was sure it wouldn't stop her from falling back to sleep. Helen raised an eyebrow in spite of herself. Liz was just to say if it got too loud, she said, and returned to the kitchen. It turned out Helen was a good singer herself, and knew many of the old folk songs too, and those she didn't know she quickly picked up when Jim showed her his folder of typed-up lyrics. They thumbed through it together, picked out one gorgeous song after another, and spiritedly discussed which singers had recorded which songs. They sang in harmony, and soon stopped worrying about whether they were too loud, because some lines and choruses were just meant to be sung loudly, because some things just have to break out of you, and because we don't normally allow ourselves to be loud. And then they sang quietly again, because some things just have to be quiet. They sang of the mist-covered mountains of home, told Caledonia that they loved her, and sang of ships and of love, always of love. A sailor's farewell to his wrecked ship made them quite sentimental. And then Jim struck up a song about gathering blackberries, and this time Helen didn't join in. Fighting back tears, she listened and didn't say a word. When he finished singing, Jim didn't say anything either. Where had he learnt that song? Helen asked quietly. He'd learnt it from a charming old man at a folk session in Norfolk a few years ago, said Jim. And Helen said that the charming old man was John Matthews, or at least he'd written the song, and he'd been a friend of her husband's. Had been? asked Jim. And Helen said that her husband had died two years ago, and would Jim like anything more to drink? There was still beer in the fridge. She passed Jim a beer, poured herself a glass of wine, juiced two oranges for the boss, and took the glass to her. Half asleep, the boss mumbled that it was very beautiful, that singing. She was sure she'd be feeling better tomorrow. Helen checked on Bernard again too, and took him another can of iron brew, and a few crackers. When she returned to the kitchen, Jim was singing a song about a bloke in a bowler hat, finding fault with a hole which should be square, not round, and not so long, and if it had to be dug at all, it should be somewhere else. It was a very silly song, and that was a good thing, for Helen couldn't have guaranteed what might have happened next otherwise.
and Jim couldn't have either. When the other three returned from the hot tub, Jim was clowning around, singing, So be easy and free when you're drinking with me. I'm a man you don't meet every day. And Helen thought that was quite true. He really was a man you didn't meet every day, although he wasn't at all a show-off like Jock Stewart in the song. The group from the hot tub were astonished to find a party apparently taking place, and quickly went to change into something warm. Mervyn got something to eat after all, and then he went to check on Liz and lay down contentedly next to her bed. He'd had an interesting evening with unexpected encounters. Thank you, Annie. That was lovely. Why, thank you. (laughs) And we heard from Isabel in our previous episode that it was, in a way, it was actually music that brought her to Scotland in the first place. Mm. And I think that really shows in moments like that one in the kitchen. Was there a soundtrack to the book for you? You know, I grew up in Scotland. I play the Scottish small pipes. My sister plays the Clasach. The, I the did not know that. I mean, I say I play the Scottish. <laughs> the thing is, it is very hard to play the Scottish small pipes when one lives in a badly insulated yes. flat. So I say I play them. I can <laughs> play them. And one day I will play them again. And your neighbours are grateful that you don't at the moment. Exactly. I feel, I have occasionally thought maybe I could cycle to my parents' flat, which has much better noise insulation and play there. But I very much grew up with the sessions which Jim mentioned in that section. You know, you go along and there's a group of people and... I think that's why I love that scene. It it is that thing of everyone knows the same songs vaguely and you can kind of join in at your own level. Um, And someone will have a ring (laughs) binder with the words printed out. I really loved that element of it and I really identified with that. I think the funny thing is that Jim is not Scottish and Scots are a lot better at folk music than English people are. Um, We just have a stronger folk culture. And so it's quite interesting because I think the soundtrack to the book for me was very much Scottish folk music. And Jim does play that because they do mention um, Caledonia, you know, um, told Caledonia that they loved her, uh, which is a wonderful song. But on the whole, I'm assuming those are English songs. And there are some, I I did really get into looking up the songs that when I didn't recognise them, I would be trying to Google them to get the right, (laughs) um, right wording. And I know there was one where actually the, the proofreader try one thought that something should be different and I was like no this is the song words um so so there were also some some bizarre songs that for me are now associated with the book like the the man in the bowler hat one but generally yeah I would say it was kind of more the sense of a session than the sound of particular songs I guess lovely yeah you write in your translator's note about the kind of standard usual considerations translators have with regard to cultural specifics Mm. can you think of any examples in your other work that you've thought about changing so i have occasionally changed stuff with nora's permission in nora gomringer's poems and there's one poem um things you cannot do it's a list poem and one of the things is talk überbildung in bayern sprechen talk about education in bavaria um and i know it's she lives does she live in Bavaria? She lives in the south of Germany. This is close. Yeah. And I ended up changing it to Essex. Talk about education in Essex. Oh. I know, I know, it's shocking. Sounds good, though. I wanted the alliteration because there's the Bildung in Bayern, but also, like, you did pull a face when I said that. 
you know, and it's someone in Britain wouldn't get that at all whereas Essex does have a reputation unfortunately so I've done I've done that and that was actually quite an interesting one because it ends with a very explicit reference to the Third Reich be grateful for the autobahn and say that you never knew anything of any final solution so Nora and I did actually have quite a talk of is it okay to change one reference earlier in the poem to a UK reference and yet the point was either the joke or the sense of familiarity. Right, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it is always, it's a fun one. It's one of the challenges I quite enjoy, to be honest. Me too. Yes, I agree. So with the peacock, obviously, it's the other way around. Yes. Did you have to change any of these cultural references or specifics? Ah. Uh... There were a few things. Um, One of the things that really bothered me was that things would be called cups of tea, which were not cups of tea. (laughs) You know, it would kind of say the boss thought she'd make herself a warm cup of tea and then she'd go and make, I mean, she has a cold and she goes and makes herself a hot honey and lemon. And I was like, that isn't a cup of tea. And that's not even, I mean, I know that Germans call, you know, Uh. in the UK, if you ask for a cup of tea, you expect a black tea. And if you're wanting a herb tea, you would say herb tea. And in Germany, it's much more broad. But I still don't think that you'd sage and yeah anyway so that was something where i was just like no 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 um there would also be things where someone had had a coffee and then and then it would say something like you know maybe he'd want another cup of tea and it almost felt like trying to be almost slightly too british in that moment of kind of like well we have to be talking about tea and i am sure that no one else ever noticed it it was because this was me reading it through for the fourth time being like (laughs) he had a coffee um so a few of those i would change to cuppa just because that was a lot more oh nice. um, and actually yes. i've just said lemon and ginger but that was i think that was something that we talked about because it was hot it was hot ginger in the original and we ended up making it honey and lemon or lemon and ginger we did yeah there were a couple of things where things would be described for a German audience, and again, the example I can think of is something that you flagged up, but which I'd kind of havered about, which was um, packets of crisps, because in Germany so often crisps are like those, oh, yeah. those large, you know, kind of family bags. Those massive <laughs> packets that you eat all in one night and feel like a terrible person. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a great person after eating all of them in one night, but uh, yeah. Okay, then. But yeah, whereas, so it has this specific thing where it talks about them all having different flavours of crisps in these small packets. Yeah. I think the tea was kind of the only thing that bothered me. Yeah, I mean, we know from Isa that she's so familiar with Scotland that she knows that there's going to be lots of different mm. flavours of crisps in your bumper pack. She does. But uh, uh, she had to explain that for her readers. Uh, and of course, we, we took those extraneous um, explanations out. Uh, speaking of Isa knowing her way around Scotland, I think she has a very good eye for class structure in British society, right? Definitely. So in the book, we've got these pampered London bankers. We've got the Laird and Lady... And they they live in this sort of genteel poverty situation. They're not quite struggling. And of course, they have their their staff who get things done. Mm. Did translating those class aspects require a lot of thought or or was it just intuitive? I always think that voice is really important. And I think, again, probably quite a good thing I live alone. Um, my neighbours must have thought I was mad when I had the window open and I was just sitting there talking to myself in these different voices. 
Um, so I would quite often kind of be like, okay, because you know Jim. So one of the bankers is from. It does say he's from more modest circumstances, and yeah. And I'd be kind of talking to myself out loud of like, is this what a sixty-year-old man who now works as a banker but like didn't have that background would say? So I definitely thought about it, but I don't think it was really a struggle. I think it was something I was aware of. Again, at the editing stage, Angela at one point was like, oh, you're using different terms for things. And I was like, yes, because different people from different backgrounds would call things differently. Right. I think the the scene where it's maybe, I was maybe most aware of it was the lady talking to Eileen, who's the housekeeper, because they have very different backgrounds, but then come from the same regional background, you know, and that was interesting i say now i don't think i struggled with it but probably at the time i was tearing my hair out and i've just repressed the memory (laughs) and we we don't actually have any direct speech so that kind of there's one sentence oh one very important sentence (laughs) yes i'm not gonna do what shall we repeat that sentence um and i said helen i am a cook um (laughs) I love that sentence. Anyway, um, yeah, no, there's which made it interesting because there is the question of, okay, well, when are you being quote unquote neutral? Like, when is it the narrator's voice? And when are you focalizing more through one character? And it kind of shifts between indirect speech, but also through, you know, a lot of it is told from different people's perspectives. And there was even, um, there's the chapter from the point of view of the dog. Yes. And I was so annoyed that I had sorted out my kids' books um, at my parents' and I hadn't brought up 101 Dalmatians. Oh no. So I was like, how do I think like a dog? Um, although I'm actually, I'm really pleased with how that chapter turned out. Yes. Um, but yeah. You can be, yeah. So another thing I like about the book is that the characters, they just kind of go about their business. But one of them sort of quietly gay and it's no big deal doesn't play a role in the plot and there's the Polish gardener and the South Asian guests at the castle and it's just perfectly normal. Mm. Um, It seems to me almost like a a portrait of a sort of idyllic pre-Brexit Britain. (laughs) Would you share that? I think that's a really interesting question. I don't know. On one level, I totally know what you mean. On another level, there's a bit of me that's like, Rushad's not going anywhere. You know, he, we still have a huge Polish community in Scotland, which is fantastic. There are so many people from different backgrounds in the UK. There are so many first, second, third generation immigrants, um, new Scots, and they are still here after Brexit. They just maybe have a less pleasant time (laughs) of it. So the book came out in 2017. Original book, yeah. 2014, we had the Scottish Independence referendum. 2016, there was the Brexit referendum. We know that Andrew has a smartphone, so we know it's not set much earlier than that. And also David is married to a guy. So again, you know, that was 2014 that that came in. The fact that they managed to have a lot of awkward conversations and none of those awkward conversations include either Brexit or the Scottish independence referendum is actually quite fascinating. Um, And so I think there is that of like, yes, yes, I think those dynamics would maybe be more tense after about, not even after the referendum necessarily, but after about a year before the referendum when kind of things were beginning to bubble up to the surface. And it did sort of make me think about some of the tense conversations in a different way of are these people who actually have very different political views 
and in the context of Brexit, the tensions between the different bankers and then also between the bankers and the landlady are quite interesting. Yes. Um, That doesn't really answer your question. I think my answer is sort of. um, (laughs) But I did really like that about the book. I feel like it's so easy to, um, to have characters who could be any background and therefore are presumed straight and white um and i found that so refreshing that david was like happened to be gay and it was specifically mentioned and it was explicit but it wasn't a big deal yeah Um, and i do know writers where they've been told that they can't have a character who's gay unless that's the plot point what Um, yep like and that's you know within the last couple of years so that was really nice as a reader good i agree yeah (laughs) (laughs) Part of the whole delight of the book is that mm. only the reader knows, knows. everything that's going on, yeah. and all the other characters have kind of partial knowledge of the uh, comedy of errors. What did that feel like? Did you feel like an all powerful <laughs> entity? <laughs> I think I had a certain amount of glee, yeah. not necessarily powerfulness, but I re- I did really enjoy it, and knowing that that would go out and that other people would sort of gradually be figuring it out as they went along, I really enjoyed. Lovely, yeah. And uh, I hope that readers can feel that that sense of glee at, at um, finding out <laughs> gradually what on earth is going to go on. I hope so. Well, thank you, Annie. Well, thank you. All I have left to say is buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> And check out our website, vq-books.eu. Watch out for more episodes of the podcast there or wherever you source your podcasts. And look us up on social media. Our handle is vqbooks because you can't do an ampersand on social media. (laughs) So thank you so much to Annie Rutherford for our conversation. Thank you for having me. And to our wonderful producer, Susan Stone, for recording, producing and editing. And to Andy Sire for our theme tune. If you haven't heard our first two episodes, why not seek them out? There's one about Selim Ostawan's book, The Blacksmith's Daughter. And of course, there's my previous conversation with the author of The Peacock, Isabel Bogdan. Thank you for listening. This podcast was co-funded by the European Union's Creative Europe programme.